the IMV M2 podcast. I'm Harriet, your host, and I'm joined by the usual members of the clinical team. So we've got Sam. Hello, everybody. And Amy. Hi, guys. And I'm pleased to welcome Hannah, the general manager from BESCO, who's also joining us today. Hi. As always, we're going to be chatting about a topic related to the field of diagnostic imaging, and this month we'll be delving into the world of endoscopy. As early this year, BESCO, a veterinary endoscopy company, joined the IMV imaging family, and as a result, we can now offer another fantastic imaging modality to our customers. So Hannah, can you give us a, a brief overview of your work at BESCO? Yeah, so BESCO is uh, an endoscopy uh, co- company. Uh, we they became part of the IMV family at the beginning of 2022, um, and we are a team um, of uh, technicians. Um, uh, we have our own service centre, UK-based service centre, and at present we're the only kind of imaging company with a UK-based service centre down in uh, South End. Um, so uh, we have our service centre and we also have a, a wonderful account manager team um, that are based across the UK uh, and we even kind of go uh, beyond the kind of UK borders as well. Uh, and we uh, focus in on endoscopy and laparoscopy, uh, supplying equipment and providing services uh, and not just like the kind of servicing as in like servicing your equipment, which we obviously do do, uh, but also we're kind of growing our education section, um, including like the clinical side of things, um, as well as the um, uh, kind of applications, like how to use the equipment, how to look after the equipment, maintain it, make sure uh, it is, as we've already kind of chatted about, fit and ready to go when you need it. Um, so we've got a great team. We've got about over... I think, I think I calculated it was probably 150 and 200 years worth of endoscopy um, engineering experience within the team. Uh, and that's not even touching on some of the um, uh, kind of using uh, user kind of uh, knowledge. Uh, Trevor is uh, one of our account managers who has been in the industry for years and years, and he has a great fountain of knowledge. Uh, and that's combined with some of our other account managers as well. So, yeah, again, we're just wanting to take that fear away from endoscopy. Um, it's been quite interesting. I've kind of um, been heading up the team for the last kind of two or three months now. Um, and having those conversations, uh, for those who haven't kind of met me before, uh, I've worked for BCF as it was originally and now IMV for nine or eight, nine years. So been involved in the imaging side of industry for quite some time. And it's quite similar to hearing about how people used to talk about ultrasound probably six or so years ago. Um, yeah, we've got one. It's in the cupboard. Oh, no, we don't touch it. Um, it's got some dust on. Oh, Oh no, we, we can't go. We can't go and pick one up. Um, um, and um, again, it's not meant to be a, a promotional thing, but we've been, we did some great um, uh, kind of sessions with Mark at BVA Live, and we um, accosted quite a few people just trying to get them using the equipment. And it was like, oh no, we can't touch it. Oh no, no. Um, and it's really, um, really looking forward to kind of taking that fear away from using it, so people are concentrating on those kind of workups and you know giving that service to their patients and their clients, um, not not trying to kind of avoid it because, oh God, no, don't make me get it out of the cupboard. That would be really, really horrible and awkward. And it's probably going, I'm probably going to break it, which you won't do. Um, so yeah, so that, uh, at Vesco, we're kind of aimed at trying to get people using endoscopy and having it become a uh, kind of a key piece of equipment uh, at the practice. Uh, again, not using it in cases where it doesn't need to be used, but not um, ensuring that it is being used when, where appropriate and there's no barriers to, for that to happen. Um, I, it's funny how you talk about 
sorry, this is my story about the kind of fear of endoscopy type thing. Like I remember being in practice with endoscopes and it was one of the things, it wasn't so much, yes, I totally get the the kind of the fear around breaking them. But one of the things I really remember quite strongly was the fear of how to clean them. So like I, I, I remember being in practice and being like literally being in these situations where I'd be like, oh maybe maybe we should use the scope and be like, oh no, 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 we can't we nobody knows how nobody knows how to clean it properly. So like if we if we if we have to get it out, it'll be this huge rigmarole of like who can clean it, who remembers how to clean it. And you can't clean it with the wrong thing, otherwise the whole thing is ruined. Like it, it was it was like this, this sort of big thing about you couldn't like it was sort of this real kind of thing about how to clean. That's brilliant, Hannah. Thank you so much. As we are chatting all things endoscopy this month, I'm pleased to also welcome Dr. Mark Dunning to the podcast. Mark is a European and RCVS specialist in small animal internal medicine and is currently a professor of small animal internal medicine at the University of Nottingham, as well as being head of internal medicine at Willows Referral Centre. So thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Hello. I know I've just given a very brief overview of your current role, Mark, uh, but please tell us more about your career so far and how and your path to becoming a European specialist. Oh, blimey. Um, uh, well, I suppose it started with probably being aware that my my abilities to stay interested in surgery were, were sort of a, a little bit blown out of the water and I didn't really catch on with being comfortable with bitch base, so I figured I needed to kind of look elsewhere for my rewards and so it wasn't just that but um so yeah i medicine had been the the thing that i thought joined all of the dots for different disciplines and so once you start down that path you sort of off you go and and i i started for a period of time as a resident up in liverpool um in medicine quite a long time ago now and then jumped ship for a bit and did a phd at cambridge um in experimental neurology which was quite good fun. Um, a bit of a tangent from veterinary medicine. It was uh, it was in the field of um, spinal cord injury and uh, CNS repair, things like multiple sclerosis and um, other human diseases. So it didn't really have it didn't, didn't have a huge number of correlates in in the veterinary field really. And then I figured, do I stay in that area or do I come back to to veterinary medicine? And, and yeah, I, I sort of came back as I as I thought I would, and then did a finished what was set at Cambridge and did a residency in medicine there and yeah carried on I spent a period down in Hampshire at what was Anderson Sturgis now Anderson Moores and then moved to Nottingham uh, as a clinical associate professor in about 2011 something like that so I've been there for coming up 11 years now and I'm now a, a chair there a professor of internal medicine uh, but I reduced my time over there around about four years ago and, and moved over to Willows to do my clinics over here um, and I'm uh, yeah so I'm, I'm head of medicine at, at Willows at the minute um, and so that's what occupies my time which seems to be not a lot left after I've sort of done those bits and pieces during the day um, but it, 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 uh, it it's all good fun. Um, and what made you want to do a PhD? I mean to do a residency is one thing and then in the middle of your residency to then decide to do a PhD on top of your residency is just incredible. Yeah, I'd always wanted to do a PhD and I think it it, it offers an opportunity to learn a discipline in a very different way and understand more about research because research has always been something I'm 
is what a big a big interest of mine. Um, and the PhD is the perfect opportunity to to hone your 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 art and understand more about what research entails. And and I think that's quite important going forward with with things that are clinical and with clinical research, such that you you understand what research what it takes to do research. I think, and then you're better place to try and design and and, and it, it work in in the research field so it was it was always a, a plan it was just one of those things as to when do you do it and a lot of people do it at different times before residency after residency um, and there's a lot of people that get so far in their career that they never do a phd and that was something i didn't want to do because once you're too far down a path sometimes it's not uh, it's not practical to go back, particularly once you've got a mortgage and children and everything else, and you go back to being a student and being paid peanuts. Um, so once you can still, when you can still do that, it's worth doing. And I, I highly recommend it to anybody that was looking at, at doing one. Really, I suppose I was quite lucky with the lab I was in. Um, I all of my, I had a number of supervisors, all of which have gone on to be professors and FRSs now. Actually, I was pretty fortunate with the people I had mentoring me, and they were hugely influential for the rest of my career, even though um, only one of them was a vet. Sorry, I, I, I'm fascinated by it. Um, did you find uh, the vets that were um, had a different approach and the non-vets had a different approach to kind of the PhD and how to, how to kind of tackle it? Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose each person had, a, had their own role because it was the vet bit was where it was it was centered at the vet school with professor robin franklin and um it the, my other supervisors were professor charles french constant and um professor kevin brindle and they were a, a doctor and uh, sort of a human um clinician and a biochemist biophysicist um and so it was using mri to follow the fate of cells in the cns and and so yeah largely it was with kevin and robin and and so I, kevin had absolutely no idea about what i was doing at the vet school and robin had absolutely no idea what i was doing with kevin in a way and so i was that sort of slightly frail intermediary between these two fairly eminent minds um so i felt certainly helpful in that regard but a very minor component of their lab but no it was um it was it was fascinating i think that the good thing about it was that there was huge engagement each side because there was a, a lack of understanding completely of the other side's area of research, but it dovetailed very nicely and, and the, the lab meetings were always very, uh, very exciting. And leading on to your, your current work now, what um, as kind of your interest in endoscopy, where's that arisen from? Mm. Or is it just as uh, small animal medicine has progressed, endoscopy is just nicely uh, fitted into that? Yeah, it's interesting. I think in having started years ago as liking surgery, you sort of, it's a hand, that's a very hands-on art. And I do quite like the idea of doing a little bit of hands-on stuff. We most mostly sit down and pontificate over results and, and, and everybody thinks we're not doing any work. But, but endoscopy, I think, lends itself to doing something. And it's one of those few opportunities in medicine that you get to fix something by pulling something out. Other than that, I, it, it was a skill that, it takes a lot of acquiring and as with anything you know there's a challenge to be had and if you can do something well that other people can't there's a little bit of a sort of bit of excitement that comes with that particularly when you can help people and then you can upskill people that can't do it so I've gone from being terrified of going anywhere near an endoscope to now 
really looking forward to somebody asking if I can give them a hand. So that's sort of a quite a big about turn. And, and I suppose any skill that you acquire, that's the idea of getting to that point. And now, you know, for me, helping people get rid of that fear and being able to say, I was where you're at. You know, when people, when we're running some of these workshops, people come up to the to the to the endoscope as though they're going to grab hold of a black mamba or something, and and they they are absolutely petrified. And and by the end of the session, usually they are holding the scope comfortably and focusing on what's in front of them rather than the terrifying thing that's in their hands. And I think that for me is the massive reward of endoscopy as well as being able to to perform form diagnostic and therapeutic endoscopy but to to get those people that can't do it and have never done it to be comfortable with at least making a start to make that progression with regards to making a start with endoscopy mm. if somebody was looking to to start doing endoscopy in practice would you suggest mm. that somebody gets a flexible endoscope for you know scoping gastrointestinal etc or would you steer them down the sort of laparoscopic, rigid endoscopy route to get started? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? And I think this comes up, and we get this question quite a lot during CPDs and, and just when we're chatting about endoscopy with with the, the, the primary care teams, I think it depends on what you want to do with your endoscope effectively. I think if you are seeing a, a large medicine caseload, respiratory disease, gastrointestinal disease, even urinary tract disease, your flexible endoscopy is is a thing that you would move to. If you're more surgery inclined after acquiring biopsies in in non or less invasive methods, you would move mount to your to your laparoscopic. But they are they're sort of allied to each other really in that they're they're serving different purposes both of those techniques. So for us mainly the laparoscopic approaches are done by the surgery teams, and the, the endoscopic approach is done mainly by the medicine teams. But in primary care, you're you're sort of a, more of a jack of all trades. But certainly, in terms of what you would choose and how you would choose it, it depends very much on what cases you feel you're you're going to be servicing with each of those skills because they're quite independent. Independent, they're quite different skills, I think, to, to have because one is obviously a rigid stick with a light at the end, and the other is a floppy stick with a light at the end, and they take some differences in terms of how you manoeuvre them. Just on that note, um, is there anything for which endoscopy is the gold standard of imaging modality? It's a good question. I suppose what I would say mainly would be the, what are the benefits of doing endoscopy? I think endoscopy offers a, a minimally invasive method of examining the inside surface of orifices and the ability to acquire directed biopsies of said area. Gold standard, I think, comes in terms of the way we sample and what we sample and, and the rationale for sampling and what we do with the results changes over the years. If I look back at the number of GI endoscopies I used to do when I was a new, just finished my residency compared to how many I do now, it was probably a lot more before, but our understanding of, of gastrointestinal disease has evolved quite a lot over that time. So I think in terms of gold standard versus appropriateness, I think endoscopic biopsies in most situations would be considered the preferable route if you can get them. The challenges are if you can't get where you need to get to with your endoscope, it doesn't matter how non-invasive it is, it becomes not fit for purpose. So 
your your choice of when to use an endoscope realistically comes down to can I get to the bit I want and also is the bit I want accessible by the scope remember the scope will only get you the surface and a little bit below so if your disease process or lesion is below the surface and not involving the surface you you cannot get your answer so I think endoscopy is one of those things that we'll often get referrals for animals to have an endoscopy but it isn't the right thing and vice versa endoscopy in some cases is exactly what's necessary to maintain that dog or cat in a in a in a, in a much healthier state because surgical biopsies and, and approaches would be very much contraindicated so i think gold standard perhaps i think gold standard of all the different things because there's so many diseases and so many systems that we deal with it's more i think appropriateness of of the endoscopic route because what you don't, even though it's non-invasive, you certainly don't want to put an animal through an endoscopic procedure that will give a low yield of, of outcome and an owner's expectation. Then is to be, end up quite disappointed that, that that something like that had been done because it's a it's not a it's not a cheap undertaking and also it's a, it's a process that requires an anaesthetic which we don't want to anaesthetise patients unnecessarily. I don't know if that answers the question. Uh, uh, it, there's not there's not many gems and, and sort of precious metals in it, but, um, but maybe. It, it helps a little bit. Um, just moving, just carrying on from that question where you were saying um, you can't use endoscopy in all cases. Are there certain cases where it's contraindicated or, you know, uh, a general practice vet has referred you a case which could easily be assumed that endoscopy would be the next course of action, but actually you would avoid using it in those cases? Mm. I suppose in situations where anaesthesia is is a challenge and animals that, that are not safe anaesthetic candidates endoscopy becomes very risky particularly the respiratory system i think of all the endoscopy carries with it a very low complication rate for gastrointestinal investigations rhinoscopic investigations for example and to a certain extent urinary investigations but when we come to respiratory investigations that's where the complication rates start to really ramp up particularly in cats and largely that's because you're you have a diseased organ system that you're trying to interrogate and you're using that organ system to enable them to stay alive. So you basically, for example, you've got a cat with lower respiratory tract disease that you're sticking an endoscope in its trachea and occluding probably over 90% of it and the lungs don't work well anyway. So under those circumstances, it's a, it is a challenge. And I think we are, you know, the, the ivory towered specialist with a team of anaesthetists and ECC clinicians, nurses, blah, blah, blah. You know, our, our abilities to maintain those animals in as healthy a state as possible are, are okay. But in primary care practice, you, that's, a, that's a pretty dangerous area to get into. So I think the respiratory system will come with it a much higher complication rate. But the other thing is, for example, things like we often get um, uh, nasal disease referred in for rhinoscopy as, a, as the primary reason for coming in. And you know, we'll often get Persian cats sent in for rhinoscopy. Now, with all the best will in the world, cats are small enough. Persian cats are, are very small in terms of their sort of nasal region. And so we, in those situations, there is an anatomic aspect to the size of the endoscope and the size of the place you're going to put it. So, And we can't easily get around that. You can put endoscopes into places that are quite tight fit, but diagnostically, that becomes very limited. And again, the, the reward 
and benefits to the patient need to be really you know considered quite carefully when we're under those circumstances so and i think things like the the, the gastrointestinal tract you know that's a the perfect place to poke an endoscope very rarely you're going to be causing problems with with size unless you're a very small cat but a lot of the gastrointestinal tract is out of the reach of the endoscope so again depending on what we're doing we also need to consider how how reliable and, and how helpful that is it is in a lot of cases particularly for you know gastric disease colonic disease going up the other end because it's accessible with the scope and esophageal disease but things in between there may be some slight challenges as to how valuable the gastrointestinal endoscopy is but yeah those would be the sort of main situation i think i was going to ask just with it sort of hearing these different uses for the, the endoscope and things if somebody was coming to start endoscopy what what would you want them to know either about the equipment mm. or taking care of it or is there anything that people generally don't always consider that you think they should when they're they're approaching endoscopy sort of maybe being inexperienced about it yeah, it's a good question. And I think this is where, again, the, the specialist versus the primary care clinician, I mean, handling and, and cleaning the scope, I mean, those are really important, but those are things that are relatively straightforward. I think that, you know, making sure that it is is not broken before you start and it's not broken after you finish is always quite important so that you don't make it even worse. I think that, that then the classic would be the leak test. People forget the leak test and you end up with a a very dead scope rather than a slightly dead scope which you know isn't ideal not when you've just got a new one um but i think in 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 primary care settings how endoscopy can be used is slightly different perhaps to to the specialist setting so for us if i want to know whether i have a gastric mucosal lesion i will ask one of our specialist images to do an ultrasound or a ct and they will tell me that it's involving the submucosa and the serosa and actually endoscopy is not going to help with that. In primary care settings, it's, it's often not necessarily something that they can answer with an ultrasound. Therefore, it, it adds a layer of diagnostic capability, even though it might not give you the diagnosis. In primary care settings, endoscopic procedures perhaps add a layer of diagnostic imaging facility, if you like, as well as the ability to biopsy. So I think in, a, in, a, in primary care settings, having an endoscope enables you to do things diagnostically that you wouldn't normally be able to do and it might be you might not be able to do a full upper gi interrogation but if you've investigated the stomach of a dog with vomiting and there's no foreign body in there and you couldn't be sure with your radiograph or your ultrasound it served a purpose so i think in primary care settings aside from making sure you don't break it and that's you know, quite important is it can play quite an important role and i think what often happens with with primary care vets that go to to look you know cpds on endoscopy they'll hear about very complex endoscopic procedures and how we biopsy this and biopsy that and they may they don't always get the impression that this can be used for a much more basic set of investigations as part of your basic diagnostic repertoire and, and it doesn't have to be done as we would do it very directed with with diagnostic imaging it can be in parallel to that providing it's not a it's not being done inappropriately under those settings there may be a greater scope for for how it can be used for, for the primary care teams thanks it's, it's really interesting I, I was going to wonder just sort of on that as well for for somebody that was starting out in terms of 
obviously this is a practical skill and um, we've talked about this being something that people want to develop and things outside of um sort of coming to to kind of courses and cpd and and, and kind of clinical materials that come with that is is there any tips you've got for people for practicing in, in a way is there is there something that, that people could can you make an endoscopy maze can you is there are there things that can be done to sort of um to, to help practice yeah, absolutely. Pop along to our LVS stand. This isn't supposed to be an advertising campaign. Pop along to the LVS stand and we'll we'll show you one of the modules that we made. Well, I made and I was doing paper mache with a balloon and my son was bored. So I did it and he didn't even help. He's only eight. So I thought I was going to get a bit of assistance to that. But literally, the problem with endoscopy, the skill of endoscopy is, is quite unique in as much as you cannot see the the tip of the thing that you're moving. So normally, with a surgery is a very transferable skill if you can do a bit spare you could have a go at craniotomy it's much more complicated but nevertheless it's the same hands you're watching the same things with an endoscope you're holding the endoscope twiddling something and at the end of maybe a meter and a half down the line you've got something moving and that's a very difficult thing to to, to learn how to do without putting that tip somewhere that you can't see in a polite way and so the the way that that we kind of describe just get a box just get a box with some stuff in it and put the endoscope through a hole in the box and move it around and just get used to being able to get your head around what you're seeing on a screen versus what's happening with your hands and your head because it's a, it's a, it is a complicated thing thinking about which way do I turn my hands and where does that go on the screen in front of me and I suppose the point is getting relaxed about where it's going and that what panic tends to set in a lot with people that haven't done a lot of endoscopy they'll put the scope in and they'll be panicking about which way left right and up and down is and and that starts to i suppose take over and, and it's a lot learning how to handle the endoscope outside of any box or, or orifice is important in just getting used to holding it and handling it and so i kind of liken it to to trying to write a story with a pen if you can't hold your pen and keep dropping it. I suppose this is in the day. This is Luddites that means that you know people just type now. Those people are going to say, "Well, I don't hold a pen anymore." But if, when you're trying to hold a pen or a quill, let's go back to that proper time. When you're holding your quill to write your story, and you keep dropping your quill, it doesn't matter how good your story is, it never comes out. And I like that's a little bit like using an endoscope. So if you're focused on not dropping the scope and being able to twiddle all the knobs right and you can't do that very well, the whole diagnostic procedure becomes marred in your panic. And it, getting that bit right before you start, which is actually relatively easy with practice and, and being able to be comfortable holding it, puts you in a much better place to, to want to pick the endoscope up. Because I think, as, as I said for me, way back I was terrified about picking this blooming thing up. And people are very similar to that. When people come up for, for you know on the courses and everything else, and I talk to that's in practice with this, they just don't want to get it out of the box because if they get it out of the box, they feel automatically that they're gonna to have to be able to use it. And using it doesn't matter, you don't have to be competent, just picking it up and holding it and just getting to grips with what you need to do with it. And once you've got that comfortable, the rest of it then becomes so much more relaxing and more rewarding. So I think being able to just hold the thing in the right way and, and move it around will, will, will add wonders to their people's ability to, to then just go ahead diagnostic with it. Um, slightly different topic. Um, we did a journal club this month on endoscopy, and in um, in my search for 
papers to review that involve endoscopy, I came across quite a few sort of novel techniques for doing things like exploratory laparotomies, which are endoscope assisted. Um, So an initial sort of survey view of the abdomen is conducted, but then the um, the small intestine is exteriorized through a small hole and the intestines are run through that way, etc. And I can see that um, through like a literature search that endoscopy is, is being pushed forward as being a, a great alternative to a lot of traditional methods. But what's your take on that sort of a compromised situation of how um, how useful endoscopy is in these sort of hybrid procedures, whether they're kind of saving us any anything or, or whether they're they're better for the patient or well just wondering what your thoughts are on it really yeah i, th- I think the, the the i suppose the big deal with this is is operator experience and what you're trying to achieve but you say if you, if you have a, a a mucosal lesion that and, and again you know a, a laparotomy is not a is not an art that gets to the mucosal you know that's a serosal art where you know you're not going to see the mucosa unless you've opened something and if you're not quite in the right place or you don't know where the right place is or you know you're in the right place within about, I don't know, a foot and a half, then your endoscopic approach to, to help that work, there's a great rationale for that. I think that the challenge is picking the right case and being, I suppose, having the right equipment to do that. And there are, there are a lot of advanced endoscopic procedures, which are great, and in humans, endoscopic I suppose interventional endoscopy and the ways that endoscopy are used in more advanced diagnostic methods using different um, image capture techniques to look at you know things like tumors and tumor regional tumor spread and and vascular um, vascularizations of lesions and things that's at a much more advanced stage than the veterinary field and I think the challenge is the questions that can and can't be answered and the questions that owners want answered dictate a lot about where we go and you know we'd love to be doing more endoscopic assessments of, of, of diseases in, in intestinal tracts for example or anywhere but the data is very limited and therefore the I suppose the the, the procedures then are a little bit stifled by by equipment costs and lack of I suppose what you're going to find it's very difficult to know what it all means really which is which is a shame and so there's a there was a technique that was published quite a few years ago now like confocal endomicroscopy which is a fantastic technique where your your endomicroscope will get such pictures that you'll be able to it's it's like you have a microscope slide in front of you and you can stomach the publication looking at helicobacter organisms and and it's fantastic but it, but these things are, are extremely expensive and trying to apply those in the general population becomes very, very difficult because owners only have a limited budget. And I think unlike the human field, we're limited by, by costs of our of our procedures. And so it'd be lovely that we have the, the you know, the CAT CAT HS or whatever we want to call it, which funds all CAT CAT investigations and, and the dog HS for them. But we don't have that, and so a lot of the more complicated and advanced endoscopic techniques are are for a very few, a very few patients. But in situations as you describe, you know, endoscopic placement of, of various tubes, which we already do now, but but in different sites, for example, and looking at cavities into cavities, 
certainly they they do have their role if people are thinking slightly outside the box at the time which is often what happens is that someone thinks well I'll put a scope in there couldn't we and somebody yeah and then then someone then says right well we'll publish that because that's quite a good idea and i think a lot of these things come from a little bit of innovation and ingenuity really at the time because it is a you know as i said a wobbly stick with a light on the end that, that you can put in most places so just moving on from kind of getting used to learning how to use the endoscope what is the can you give a brief overview of the different retrieval instruments or biopsy instruments that we have available to us because i know when you're not only trying to work out how the tip is moving but then introducing an instrument into that is a is another minefield yeah and i suppose this is whether you're trying to biopsy or retrieve so whether it's a diagnostic or therapeutic endoscopic procedure i suppose so for the for the diagnostic procedures you essentially you're to get a biopsy, you're looking for the, the largest size biopsy that you can get because even the largest size biopsy is tiny. You're looking a few millimeters. And so the, the classic would be the gastrointestinal biopsies. And we would, I tend to use, so different people have different preferences, but the, the evidence would suggest that you get the best biopsies with the biggest biopsy cup, which seems obvious, but nevertheless, there are a few publications sort of demonstrating that, and that's the same with people. And it doesn't really need a spike, so they'll come spiked or unspiked and spiked sort of seated in the wall a little better, but it doesn't need they don't need spikes, these things. So you can as long as you have a the biggest cup size that you can fit down your channel, and the operating channel of the endoscope is something that is defined by its manufacturing um sort of specifications. So you'll be able to find out how big the operating channel is so that you can put the right size biopsy forceps down. Remember the channel diameter it's not what well, you'll need a slightly smaller diameter forcep than the channel diameter otherwise it won't go in or you'll wedge it in and then you'll end up with a scope that needs to be repaired so make sure that you look at what the, the manufacturers recommend for your individual scopes but certainly um for endoscopic biopsies a, a large cup size and no spike is absolutely fine you can get serrated edge all sorts but um yeah smooth edge is, is again absolutely fine when we're looking at retrieval devices, that again is is there's a minefield there. I mean, there's a huge, there's dozens and dozens of these things, and and you people tend to look at them and think, oh, that looks quite cool and exciting. I'll buy one of those, and then have no use for it whatsoever. They'll try using it once, and it's totally pointless. And they're not cheap. These things. I think just going back to the the endoscopic biopsies, what we tend to do now which we didn't used to do some time ago, was use disposable biopsy forceps rather than reusables. And the reusables used to be the mainstay, but the trouble is they gradually got more and more blunt and your biopsies got less and less effective. And remember, the, the diagnostic endoscopy, at least, is, is based on the procurement of, a, of a, an effectively acquired high-quality biopsy. Otherwise, the procedure is pointless. So having negotiated the pylorus for the 50th time and being absolutely proud of yourself if you get a bad biopsy or your biopsy is not diagnostic quality that's a pointless exercise so we must make sure the biopsies are of good quality so that's where the disposable biopsy forces comes in because you then have a an ability to get good biopsies on every occasion because they're sharp so i mean you can use them a couple of times but nevertheless the disposable principle makes a massive difference to the quality of your biopsy but then go back to the, the retrieval devices. There are several that I would have as a, as a routine. So there are what we call the three-pronged grabbers. They're, they're relatively, relatively, uh, I suppose, fragile-looking 
forceps these. So they have three prongs of metal with little teeth on the end. And those things will grab anything with, that is fabric. So we call them the sock grabbers. So they also grab pants and other bits of fabric, but the principle being is they will grab that and never let it go. And so you can be sure that the sock grabbers come out and they are they are worthy of their, their name. They will do that job perfectly. So some sock grabbers are really important. And then you need various sort of loop stroke snare devices and perhaps baskets to remove other foreign bodies, particularly things like stones, peach stones, bits of Lego, anything that's big enough to grab. Now, the things that have ridges on them, the single loop snare becomes perfect. And the problem with the loop snares that people often find is they'll buy a maybe a two and a half or five centimeter loop snare, which is fine if your foreign body is smaller than that. But a lot of these things are large. And so I would suggest you bought a large loop snare so that you can loop it around a large foreign body and then tighten it down. Because the problem is if you've got a loop, but it's not big enough to go around your foreign body, then it's as good as not having one. So I would tend to move people to buying large loop snares, which can you can close down very nicely over the smallest foreign body. And a single loop is perfectly adequate for most things with some ridges on. When we come to smoother objects, things like the three-looped grab basket or a three-loop snare become more useful so that you've got three points of contact. Once you get more complicated than that, some of these baskets that have five, four, five, or six sort of um, loops of metal on them, they're very difficult to get around foreign bodies. So whilst they look like they'll never let it go, they also never pick it up really. So you need to be very careful about having a happy medium. And occasionally you'll have the perfect sort of spherical foreign body that you can get into the um, into the into the baskets that you can buy. So the standard would be the three prong grabbers, a loop snare, and maybe a, a, a three prong snare. And when we're looking at foreign body removal from the esophagus we tend to do those non-endoscopically so they wouldn't be the endoscopic forceps since they're just not big and they're not big enough and not strong enough no thank you for that that that's really interesting what's the most interesting foreign body you've retrieved endoscopically oh in interesting this is a this is a family show. Yeah, well, yeah, um, yes, I, I, yeah, I, I did. I, I purposely said interesting because I was like, I didn't want to, I didn't want to kind of meet, force you into something a bit more sort of salacious. But uh, yes, yeah, no, no, let's see. Interesting. I suppose intro. Oh, there's quite a few. I think the two interesting ones would be one was an indestructible dog. Ball. These, and I won't name the, the the company. Obviously, there are balls that are totally indestructible. Dogs cannot destroy these and eat them. It took us an hour and a half to get this indestructible dog ball out of this dog's stomach. It had been chewed into so many pieces. We were thinking of sticking it back together and sending it to the company to say um, this one wasn't, but we did. Um, so that was quite interesting and a little frustrating. And another one was removing a, a, a chewed up razor blade from a dog's stomach, which was challenging and in getting out sort of sharp materials. You, you, we tend to use a stomach tube and put the endoscope down that so that you can pull the, the sharp stuff out through the stomach tube. Um, but this was a dog who'd eaten a razor blade of their owner who was a decorator who used a, an old fashioned razor blade to, to scrape paint off of 
wooden surfaces before repainting and he'd been doing this and someone had knocked at the door he'd gone to the door and when he came back the dog had for the dog's own reasons chewed up this razor blade and and it was in enough large pieces that it wasn't a good idea to leave that in the stomach and and that was interesting actually when we moved these pieces around and took them out the, the stomach had quite a lot of tiny lesions in it that thank yeah thanks mark that's really interesting thank you very much well that's been really interesting um if you would like to know any further information on endoscopy then please check out the vesco website or visit their stand at the london vet show in november um, i'd like to thank you all for joining me especially mark and hannah and we'll be back next month for another episode of focal point until then please take a look at our social media platforms for lots more great imaging content and keep scanning and it's a goodbye from all of us yeah thank you very much mark and hannah and goodbye bye